Hello, and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Dr. Imran Ahmed, a visiting research fellow at the Institute. Today we'll be speaking about Afghanistan. 15th of August this year marks one year since the Taliban takeover of Kabul. The Taliban's quick success in toppling the US-backed government of Ashraf Ghani was surprising for many, including the Taliban themselves and signaled the many failures of the US-led occupation of Afghanistan and its botched withdrawal. Images of desperation at airports as Taliban rule became a reality continue to haunt memories to the present day. There were uncertainties about how a Taliban government would govern, given its time in the shadows as an insurgent fighting force over the previous decades. There were also uncertainties about regional security and whether the Islamic Emirate would become a sanctuary for militant groups and pose a threat to neighboring states and Western powers. The ethics and logistics of administering international aid and working with the Taliban continue to remain a contested matter. No country has accorded the Islamic Emirate formal recognition, and the debate on how or whether the Taliban can be brought to heel remains open. Here to help us take stock of the past 12 months and think about what might lie ahead for Afghanistan is Associate Professor Avinash Paliwal. Dr. Paliwal, welcome to South Asia Chat. Thank you for having me here, Imran. It's an honor to be here for the podcast. It's our pleasure. As an astute observer of Afghanistan, how has Afghanistan changed since the Islamic Emirate assumed power a year ago? There are multiple fault lines that uh, existed in Afghanistan, right? Uh, Right from the ethnic fault lines to sectarian fault lines to gender fault lines. Almost each of this fault line today, over the past one year or so since Kabul fell to the Taliban, Uh, they have become exacerbated, uh, become much more violent in in some ways or the other. Uh, So I would say instead of a huge change in itself, it's it's the continuity or or the worsening of uh, societal ties, which is one of the most, the foremost marker of of this regime. And and it's, you know, one year worth of governance, if one can call that, uh, since August 15, 2021, we can see that uh, questions of representation within the Taliban continue to haunt both uh, internal power brokers in Afghanistan as well as uh, their international governmental interlocutors and non-governmental observers. How does the interim government, as it has been called till now, actually distributes power, keeping the ethnic and other sort of societal uh, categories and the representation issues around that. Uh, how does that really kind of play out in governance structures of the Taliban is still a contested issue, right? It has led to this mantra for of you know or or the demand for inclusivity, which means different things to different people, uh, as far as the Taliban is concerned. But no one actually knows what that actually means in practice, uh, including the Taliban, which is struggling to figure out whether 
you know, just having kind of uh, people of different ethnic, ethnic groups be in the interim government, would that be sufficient or it's something else that they can do or are willing to do at all uh, that would help assuage some of those concerns both domestically and internationally. So that, I, would, I would say that is the most prominent feature to my mind that, 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 is, uh, that, is, that holds true for Afghanistan in 2022 is that almost every societal fault line is, has become more violent and more extreme than it was uh, before. And the situation before the rise of the Taliban was no better in some ways. Thank you very much for that sobering uh, picture. Uh, I wanted to move to something that was a little bit more re recent. What does the uh, presence and recent death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, killed by a US drone strike, tell us about the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, and perhaps other t terror outfits residing in Afghanistan? That's an excellent question. I think this this drone strike in the heart of Kabul, literally a stone's throw away from the, the presidential palace uh, in Sherpur in Kabul, it's it's quite indicative of you know certain things, certain multiple actually multiple aspects, which some of which were known and others which were less kind of understood. First of all, the relationship between Al Qaeda and the Taliban never truly ceased in practice. Right, there was a lot of negotiations by the Taliban around the promise and the premise that this kind of relationship that it enjoyed with the Taliban in the 90s will not exist again. But the fine print of these negotiations, as kind of seen in the open annex, open kind of uh, aspects or parts of the Doha agreement, but there are secret annexes too to that agreement, um, lies the devil lies in the detail, uh, in the fine print that the they never promised that the Al-Qaeda will not be present on the ground. The promise was that it will not plan anything or execute anything outside the territorial boundaries of Afghanistan, even if they are there on the ground uh, in Afghanistan. So that's the promise. That's how Taliban looks at, at the Doha agreement, unlike what the US or other international actors might want to see, that this is, this is Taliban promising to cut the cord. No. If anything, the Al-Qaeda was quite operational uh, during its time, uh, you know, in, in, in Afghanistan, and it be became increasingly operational over the last one year. We saw many more uh, detailed reports, propaganda items coming out of, uh, of the Taliban kind of uh, that, that sector. And you can see Eman al-Zawahiri himself making a lot of videos and propaganda for multiple purposes, right? Uh, spreading the message, but also increasing the recruitment base of the organization, which, which uh, has seen a lot of turmoil for internal and external reasons. So no, the, the relationship existed, the relationship thrived, despite the 20-year war that the Americans and, and all the NATO allies fought in, in Afghanistan. So that is truly a political failure. Of, of this entire war that was fought. But at the same time, it, the fact that he was killed by an American drone in Afghanistan, despite the fact that Americans have left the battlefield in a, in a physical sense, shows a, an evolution of sorts in regional dynamics around Afghanistan. It shows that one of the Americans are still a very important actor as far as Afghanistan is concerned, both in a domestic and a regional sense. Uh, but also they have the capability to target someone inside, inside the country despite not having boots on the ground. 
This simply implies that there is some degree of regional cooperation happening with the Americans, which the, 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 the detail or the fine print of which is not out in the open. Uh, we still do not know where the drone actually took off from. Uh, and there's a huge speculation that the likelihood of that happening from Pakistani territory remains high, even if it's not corroborated. Uh, and the other bet is that it came somewhere from the Gulf. That, regardless of where it did come from, it's indicative of the of 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 a fact that both regional players, you know, Afghanistan's neighbors and the Americans and the West at large continues to keep an eye out on the situation on the ground, if not in a way that it did earlier, but but certainly so as far as their direct national interests getting threatened is concerned in future. Uh, the third issue that I think this, this whole strike raises is what does it mean for all the other transnational kind of Islamist groups that still operate, and we know that they operate from Afghan soil, it's not just the Al-Qaeda. If you ask an Indian policymaker, they would list Lashkar-e-Taiba or Jaish-e-Muhammad uh, and their presence in, in Afghanistan. They would say that, okay, there are, you know, limited but certain number of Indians being recruited by the Islamic State of Khorasan province, and they have been found actively being trained or, you know, on the active on the battlefield in Afghanistan. So what is the Taliban, what does the Taliban has to offer other countries uh, and and you know what their demands are. The Chinese have been asking for action on the ETIM, Pakistan. There is a whole new phase of the of the Tehreek Taliban Pakistan insurgency um, that is playing out in real time inside Pakistan. And we know that the literally the negotiations between the Pakistani security establishment uh, on on the on the kinetics of it on the operations or the political demands being made by the TTP are happening in Kabul with the with the Taliban itself so so you you know this is a this is a multi-dimensional story where the Taliban has not cut its cord with most transnational jihadis and is perhaps kind of making promises that it will keep them under under control if and when they get some degree of uh, support, you know, whether diplomatic or financial, from whichever interlocutor they're trying to trying to engage with, and I think this is a this is a process that we still need to see how it plays out, and it goes into you know into into the reluctance of a lot of countries to actually, in fact, most countries to confer diplomatic recognition to the Taliban, which is super, which is very essential for them if you think about it from their domestic. Uh, governance and economic issues as far as those issues are concerned. Thank you. Thank you so much for unpacking such a complex and uh, evolving picture. Um, looking to the east now, um, the 15th of August also marks the 75th anniversary of Indian independence and Indian ties with Afghanistan appear to be growing. Why did India reopen its embassy in Kabul and what are the areas of New Delhi's mutual interest with working with the Taliban? The primary reason, Imran, for opening India's embassy, in, and they call it a technical mission, but the number of staff is anywhere between 60 to 70 people. So that's not an inconsequential amount, even though there's quite a, I mean, this would include quite a substantial set of security and support staff for the actual political officers uh, and intelligence officers on the ground. Uh, first of all, the India was India really lost out 
last year when the Taliban came to power. It was a shock for India to having to leave a country in which it had invested so much capital over the last two decades and having had the memory of the horrible memory of being absent from that country and then being caught in a in a very uh, in a very embarrassing position during the 1999 ICA-214, the Indian Airlines hijacking incident, when uh, an Indi a civilian Indian airliner was hijacked on its way from Kathmandu to Delhi and then flown through a Sakishwis route all the way into Kandahar, which was then controlled by the Taliban, and then having to kind of you know basically give up on some of this very prized uh, kind of militants which India had arrested uh, in you know in relation to Kashmir this was something this is a memory that continues to haunt India that we were not there and that is when our vulnerabilities in Afghanistan were exploited by our strategic adversary Pakistan right that's how that's how Indian officials see the situation so to this time over the past one year there was very clearly a consensus that India will not be absent from Afghanistan anymore, regardless of who is in power. Uh, and the fact that it had to leave the, the compound, the embassy compound, in a rush to save the lives of its officials itself was a shock big enough for them to, to kind of, you know, deal with. So the calculus is very clear. It's Afghanistan is strategically critical. You cannot choose your neighbors. You cannot actually influence the rise of all of the Taliban in a strategic or a fundamental sense, let's say, the way the Americans could in 2001 and two. But you continue to deal with them. You continue to shape their behavior. And at the end of the day, uh, you continue to see how their own Taliban's relationship with Pakistan is evolving and what space it offers you. That's the first geopolitical kind of realpolitik reason which has driven the policy making as far as India is concerned in terms of its outreach to the Taliban, right? The other reason, of course, is the idea of having a broader outreach to the people of Afghanistan, uh, where, where India enjoys quite a considerable degree of, uh, you know, warmth, if you say, a kind of historical, social kind of, the relationship, the idea of India, regardless of what, you know, the internal politics of India is, the idea of India in Afghanistan has been a warm one, a, a positive idea, a positive image. And that is something that Indians don't want to lose anymore. They don't want to be seen as, uh, as a neighbor that ran away uh, when the people of Afghanistan needed it to be there. So that is why the outreach has happened. But it's also quite a restricted, limited outreach as, as far as the formal official charter is concerned. It allows India to offer humanitarian aid. It allows India to offer, perhaps, have conversation on its developmental projects, but no more. Now, looking around the world, no country to date has recognized the Taliban. But the no number of diplomatic missions on the ground appears to be increasing. India, for instance, became the 15th mission to open in Kabul, a, a decision lauded by the Taliban leadership. What does it tell us about the international mood towards the Taliban? Are there indications that the Taliban are more amenable to international pressure, or is the international community losing its leverage over the group? I think there is... I'll, I'll, answer that question using a recent example, the debate that is playing out on whether or not to extend the travel ban on the Taliban or the Taliban senior figures who have been traveling kind of, you know, um, yes. traveling across the world. And there, is, there are increased calls 
but to to actually put the travel ban or make it make the travel ban more onerous and less liberal uh, you know or, or the travel allowance less liberal and this is something which shows that the international i mean whether it's the americans whether it's other powers uh, they've struggled to exercise the leverage that they do enjoy with the taliban right it's not as if the international powers or the great powers don't have leverage of the over the taliban the 7 billion worth of aid that the americans are supposed to kind of at least half of which they're supposed to disburse or to give to the taliban 3.5 billion uh, if not to the taliban sorry to to the people of afghanistan that is something that has offered a very substantial stick to the americans to deal with the taliban and shape their behavior the indians or other partners right uh, other na- other neighbor- neighboring actors have used the 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 as they say you know the promise of humanitarian aid or more financial aid to the taliban which is serious seriously cash strapped and is struggling to to govern its economy and to bring it back in shape um, that is a huge that's a huge tool of leverage but they have also struggled to actually exercise it they have not been able to make the taliban relent on social issues like girls education or to have to behave or to you know just not undertake witch hunting within the system against the former republican islamic republican kind of officials who still continue to remain there and i'm not talking about the karzais and the abdullah abdullahs who are there in kabul but the other junior you know second tier and third tier officials who have been hounded some of have, some of who have been killed as well so that is that is a serious hindrance that the international community is facing they've not they've just not been able to tell the taliban uh, they've been able to tell the taliban what to do but not been able to get them to deliver so i think that is a struggle that shall that shall continue i th- i see see i think in the foreseeable future and there is a reason for that i think it's not really about uh what the internet what the us or what india or what the west or what the other neighbors of afghanistan want from it but it's more about the domestic politics of the taliban the intra taliban politics itself uh there are huge i mean it's 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 a movement which is deeply split it was a movement that was an insurgent movement for a long time suddenly came into power uh it didn't expect to come into power the way it did even if it did expect to come to power at some point in time but the the suddenness of it last year took even the talibs by surprise to a considerable degree and right now we see two broad factions right one is the kandahar group so called kandahar group with mulla baradar yes. and and mulla yaqub kind of dominating the scene and then is the the hakani family which basically have much more firepower and are in control of kabul and adjoining areas right uh, that's a serious split and it's easy to kind of underestimate the impact that kind of split has on these issues related to governance which on which the international community is making demands uh, it is the kandahar shura which actually supported this deeply domestically unpopular decision of not reopening girls school yes mm. there is an ideological push for that to happen but there is also a political rationale it complicates the hakani family's international outreach you know this whole idea of the hakani's trying sirajuddin hakani or anasakani being the pragmatic uh, sort of figure figures within the taliban trying to reopen schools and make afghanistan quote unquote a normal country uh, that is something that becomes deep that frustrates that outreach that narrative uh, as far as the external interlocutors are concerned the fact that 
Eman al-Zawahiri was found in Kabul, which is being, which is under control of Sirajuddin Akani. Uh, and just hours after that drone strike, and this is before the whole thing becomes uh, open knowledge to, to, to everyone and it kind of makes news flash across the world, it was uh, Mullah Yaqub who was giving a, a long interview with the, with the NPR, the US uh, radio, uh, NPR, yeah, the National Public Radio of the United States. And there are still questions about the timing of that interview, the purpose of that interview. It's quite unusual for Yakub to come to, you know, to come and give interviews both to TV channels and radio stations of this kind of, of such international audiences. It's, I think a lot of the problems have to do in many ways to the intra-Taliban politics that is playing out in very, in a very violent competitive sense. Uh, rather than what leverage the international community has or not. And I think that's worth keeping an eye out uh, moving forward because which faction comes to dominate in a long-term sense will have a huge impact on what Afghanistan or the Emirate or whatever form of governance it adopts eventually in a formal sense uh, actually looks like. Thank you very much for that. My, my final question relates to the domestic resistance uh, the Taliban are facing. Recently, we've had reports of the Islamic State-led killing of Rahimullah Haqqani, a prominent Taliban religious leader, in a suicide bombing, something the Taliban have also confirmed. Now, what is driving the Islamic State's battle against the Taliban? And what do we know about IS's motives, ideology, composition, uh, and strategy. Can the Islamic Emirate co-opt or coexist with the cal caliphate or are the two fundamentally incompatible? I've squeezed in a few questions in, into one there. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for that, that range of questions. ISKP is a... Okay, let me, let me just take a step back and kind of give my first sort of view of ISKP broadly put, right? I think this is this movement is a bit of a piece of abstract art you one makes of it what one makes of it and and it has different sort of you know the origins are complicated the the motives perhaps they seem very clear and uh, you know uh, in a they seem very black and white but i'm not sure about that right uh, they want they do want to have they do want to capture the afghan state there is no two ways about it this is a movement which is ideologically driven by an extreme version of of kind of political islam and they don't bother and this is, i think is a fundamental difference they don't bother with even a patina of popular appeal among the people of afghanistan or elsewhere or wherever they are con controlling whichever state they are controlling uh, because they see the rule as a very top-down rule. So this co social contract that we see in reg you know, most other societies and states and nation-states, where there is a contract between the state and the citizen, however skewed or complicated or corrupted that might be, uh, they don't bother with that. That's not a contract, or at least that's a contract that's a completely one-sided contract as far as the ISKP is concerned. And we have seen that kind of uh, in the case of, of Syria and Iraq when the IS the Islamic State did exist in the shape and form it did uh, in, in the last decade. Uh, so that is something that is incompatible with the Taliban. The Taliban is also an Islamist movement. I don't put much cachet on the Pashtun nationalism 
aspect of it, even though it is infused into certain streams of the Taliban's day-to-day routine governance. Uh, it's an Islamist outfit, but it still has some degree of respect for at least some, some sort of a popular appeal of keeping people on side, right? And that is why you see the factional fights that are happening. Those factional fights between the Kandaharis and the Haqqanis won't happen without some degree of popular support in some sections of Afghan society across ethnicities, right? Uh, that is not what the Islamic State of Khorasan province really bothers with. It operates in cells, it operates clandestinely, it strikes uh, at its own choosing. And yes, it has been targeted against and, you know, its capabilities have been degraded, but it exists. So, I don't see an ideological compact emerging between the Caliphate and the Emirates for that very reason, because this is, you know, if I take the example of, of the left movements in different parts of the subcontinent, it's like the Marxists and the Naxalites, they just will never coexist with each other in, in India, right? This is, in fact, if you ask a Marxist in India, they would say the first and foremost challenge they face or have faced in the past is from the Naxals, less one from the parliamentary democracy or the other kind of, you know, uh, systems and the political parties or, or the government security agencies they have they had to battle during the heyday of their movement in India from. So, so you can see that kind of very serious ideological struggle panning out and Taliban continuing to remain the dominant force therein. In terms of, you know, the, the ISKP's motivations and coming back to this issue, apart, apart from the fact that it plans for state capture, there has been an interesting, the timing of their attacks, the target of their attacks have been very interesting. I think the killing of Haqqani is, is a case where, you know, which almost makes it seem like the ISKP is much more invested in targeting the Haqqanis rather than anyone else. And I think they view Haqqanis as a much more uh, much more potent threat to their own existence than they see other factions, including the Kandaharis. Uh, even though, I mean, these are, these are really kind of tenuous distinctions. They have targeted mm. Taliban of every sort and kind. But I think the, the high-profile attacks that the Haqqanis have dealt with um, is something which is worth keeping an eye out on. And the previous example, I the other example I want to offer is the attack at the Kabul airport when the evacuations were going on last year when the Americans were leaving, right? There were a couple of blasts that really took a heavy toll. So it, it's, it's something that, you know, you can see that this is a highly disruptive force. And that disruptiveness goes against the, you know, it may or may not allow it to actually take on state power, uh, but it does complicate the Taliban's life. It does kind of uh, make Taliban run its uh, run administration much more difficult, given how much resources it will have to focus on the ISKP. In terms of the composition, again, Amiran, uh, Imran, I'll, I'll stop after that. Uh, it's, sure. It's very, it's very interesting because they historically this is a movement that you know that attracted individuals from across ethnic and sectarian lines. Well, not sectarian, at least ethnic lines. Uh, they were people from Uzbekistan. They were people from Pakistan. They were Afghans of different ethnicity who joined the ISKP either out of being disgruntled with the Talibs or other movements that they were part of, or being too ambitious. Uh, or both at the same time, right? Uh, 
today we see, uh, you know, there is a huge sort of Afghan and Pakistani presence in the make, in the composition of the of the ISKP. But there are even former Islamic Republican figures from the former Afghan army, you know, the, who have who are willing to join the ISKP. Now that is a worrying trend for them because these figures see that ISKP is the only movement which can allow them, offer them secrecy, which they, they desire, uh, you know, to, to not get caught by the Taliban and be killed out of vengeance, uh, and also offer them a way to actually target the Taliban whom they see responsible for their own collapse. And that is something which will be very interesting to watch in the, in the months and years to come. How is it that the Islamic Republic or sections of the Islamic Republic uh, morphed and joined the ISKP's ranks? to target or to resist the Taliban, uh, instead of joining the groups like the National Resistance Fronts in the North, which is primarily a Tajik Panshiri entity, if not, if not entirely so, but dominantly so. Uh, it has the echoes of the debathification of Iraq and the Iraqi state apparatus from Saddam Hussein's time, kind of joining the extreme right and, you know, the sole f former generals during Saddam's time actually fighting, uh, you know, the battles for the Islamic State in, in Iraq and the Levant. Uh, there, are, so there are some degree of, you know, there's some reflections of that in Afghanistan, even if the scale is not the same. Professor Paliwal, you've given us so much to consider. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Imran. You're listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates from our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter.